Hear now God's word. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commands, on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is God's holy and inspired word. It contains all that we need for faith and for life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Let's go to him now in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Bible, which contains everything, absolutely everything, to have us believe the Lord Jesus Christ and what duty it requires of us. Thank you for giving that to us and would you bless it and make it fruitful among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not many of us do well with commands. I forbid it. Or if, if you take one more step, this is what our parents used to say, and now we say it or used to say it. When my children got to where they could crawl, and even more so when they could walk, I could command them not to touch that light socket because it could hurt or else uh, be deadly. You could see it in their eyes. This just got interesting. However, in this passage, the psalmist is dealing with the command of the living God and takes God to be his master. He wants to perform his statutes so badly that he prays to the God of heaven, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. He wishes that he could be steadfast in keeping his master's orders. If a dog is between two men on the road, it is hard to tell the difference between the dog's master. But if they come to a fork in the road, it will be obvious who the dog's master is because he will follow him, run to him, and express love with him. Thus is the religious man. You will know the regenerate man by whom he obeys. God says to keep his commandments, but the world, the flesh, and the devil would lead him the other way. But when a man comes to a fork in the road, you will realize whom the man follows by his obedience. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
you will know whom the man serves by his obedience. This leads us to the doctrine of the text. For the Christian who has been saved, God's law is to be a rule of life. For the Christian who has been saved, God's law is to be a rule of life. I hope that I can prove this as we go along. In the exposition, I would like to divide this up in the following headings. First, the commandments. Second, the exclamation. And third, the results. Let's look at the first. The commandment is described in verse 4. It may seem unnecessary, but we need to say it anyway. Who is the you? Verse 4 says, you have commanded. As we move to the third, excuse me, to the fourth verse, here we have a new subject, God or the Lord. This will remain the subject through Psalm 119. Psalm 119.4 says that God has commanded. It is in the best interest for you to obey the commands of God. If we take the three previous verses into consideration, obedience would lead to your happiness. You would be blameless in the sight of the Lord because you would do no wrong and seek him with your whole heart. It would be in your best interest to obey the commands of the Lord because it would lead to happiness. I like to say that the law or the commandments is like a fence. The fence to a backyard. You can be happy as long as you are staying within that fence. But the moment you leave the fence, you can get into all sorts of trouble. You can be kidnapped or run, uh, run in the way of traffic or any sorts of things. Happiness is only promised if you stay within that fence. That is an illustration of the way God's commandments work. If you stay within the fence, you stay within the commandments, you will be happy. God has commanded his precepts. Verse 4 says, you have commanded your precepts. Precept is a precept is a word for direction and order. God gives orders. We must follow those orders. It is something like uh, a military leader uh, where people say, that is a direct order. Do you want to be court-martialed? Then disobey that order. God gives orders or directions that you would do well to follow or else be court-martialed and imprisoned in your sin and misery. Dr. Alan Ross says, the point being stressed here is that all of God's laws are divine orders. Furthermore, the psalmist says that they are to be kept. Verse 4 also says to be kept or to be guarded. Other instances of this word are contained 63 times in the Old Testament and particularly in reference to the law. 
I will just give a couple of examples to you, a positive and then a negative one. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The one who loves the Lord keeps the Lord's commandments. In 2 Kings 17, the narrator comments on the faithlessness of Israel and the corresponding exile that occurred in 722 B.C. In verse 19, he states that Judah did not learn the lesson from Israel that they were expected to. He says, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. On the one hand, he that loves the Lord obeys his commandments, keeps his commandments. And on the other, he who despises the Lord does not keep his precepts. Furthermore, he gives us an adverb which which modifies the infinitive to be kept. And it says diligently. Verse 4 again says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. The King James, the ESV, and the NASB use this translation. But I wonder if the NIV gets closer to the meaning. And it reads, You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. This gets closer to the meaning of this passage. That the Lord doesn't just lay down precepts to be marginally obeyed. He doesn't say that you can take it or or leave it if you want to. But the Lord who made heaven and earth says that his commandments must be fully obeyed. With all your life and all your deeds and all your thoughts and all your actions, he would demand that you keep his precepts diligently. His precepts are to be fully obeyed. This leads to the first proposition that I would make. God's commandments are exhaustive. God's commandments are exhaustive. What I mean by exhaustive is this, that the commandments demand all of you. This makes sense because you are to be blameless and you are to keep his testimonies and seeking him with the whole heart. This is how you receive blessedness. That is how you are to be happy. If you are to keep God's command, commandments with every thought, word and deed. With all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, God's commandments are exhaustive. And I would add, exhausting. With all seriousness, I I would add, they are exhausting. The way they are exhaustive. Paul says in Romans 7, 12, so that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, God's commandments are holy. 
You cannot be holy unless you observe his commandments. You cannot be righteous unless you obey his commandments. And you cannot be good unless you obey God's commands. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one is holy. No, not one. No one seeks after good. No, not one. But praise Jesus, who is all of these things. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This moves to our second heading, the exclamation. Verse five says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. What is the meaning of steadfast? The King James says, oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. The New American Standard says, oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. But I think closer to the point is that steadfast means to stand firm or stand fast. Another translation is this. Oh, that my ways may stand firm according to your statutes. This is at one and the same time an admission of guilt and a hope to stand firm in the future. Let us look first at an admission of guilt. What I mean is in this is you only, excuse me, what I mean is this, you only hope to stand firm or steadfast if you acknowledge that you have not stood fast in the past. The only one who prays this prayer admits that he has not been steadfast in the past. Those who pray this prayer in admission of guilt are only the regenerate. They have been given eyes to see and believe in the God of Scripture. Only one, the only ones who pray this prayer are those who admit their guilt and are repentant of it. And he or she will find forgiveness. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism 87 says, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with a full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. The psalmist reflects this catechism in the prayer, may I be steadfast in keeping your statutes. He would like to stand firm presently with a full purpose after new obedience. If only God would show him the grace of steadfastness, that grace that would move him to mercy out of grief and hatred for his past sins. Admission of your guilt leads to a hope of steadfastness in the future. The psalmist prays this prayer because he has hope in the gracious God that he will stand firm in the future. This second heading leads us to our second proposition. God's commandments point to sin. God's commandments point to sin. 
In this psalm, he prays for strength to stand firm under the conviction that he hasn't stood, stood firm in the past. The commandment, the commandments point the believer and the unbeliever to sin. As Romans 7, 7, Paul says, what then shall we say? That law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He then offers an example. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covenants, excuse me, of covetousness. The command points out sin to the believer and unbeliever alike. The unbeliever hears the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, and then suppresses that commandment and, and continues in his unbelief. The believer, in contrast, hears that you shall not covet, and he expresses true repentance if God so graciously reveals his sin. He repents and confirms the point that Martin Luther made in his 95 thesis, that all of life is repentance. The other day, Lindsay and I saw a for sale sign, and it had a really big backyard. And you all know that ours is not big at all. I said the children could could play out there all day long. But were we being covetous? I recall C.S. Lewis's test of sin. All sin is uh, comparative. If we have the sin of covetousness, we are comparing. Comparing God's gift God's gifts with those of others and saying, I want, I want what so-and-so has. The Shorter Catechism 80 says the 10th commandment requireth full contentment of our own condition with a right and charitable frame of the spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. We have to be content with what we have. That doesn't mean that we are prohibited from buying another house. That is not what I'm saying. But it means asking the question, am I being content with what I have in the station that I'm in? Does it express covetousness? And this is what I mean. uh, This is what it means to follow the commandment steadfastly and to keep his commandments diligently. As verse six says, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, we ought to test our thoughts and attitudes with the 10 commandments, uh, the 10 commandments of God and see whether it be sinful or not. For instance, does my indifference towards my neighbor cause me to hate my neighbor? Then it is sinful. Does my lack of chastity lead me to love another man's wife, then it is sinful. Does my failure to look after the needs of others lead me to commit robbery, then it is sinful. Does my failure to represent my neighbor honestly lead me to bear false witness, then it is sinful. I belabor the point. But this prayer, 
Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes always leads to the admission of guilt, at least in this life, that you have not been steadfast in the past. And the desire is to be steadfast in the future. This leads us to our third and final heading, the results. Verse uh, verse 6 says, excuse me, uh, we're under the subheading, shame no more. And this is really important. When we read in verse 6, then I shall not be put to shame. Do you remember the first covenant that was made with Adam? That they were naked and unashamed. However, when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they had been commanded not to eat, at that point when they ate of the tree, they were ashamed because of their nakedness. They covered their nakedness with fig leaves and made for themselves loincloths. However, God showed them mercy. And in Genesis 3.15, he promised them a redeemer that would crush the serpent's head. Then the Lord God made for Adam and, and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them in the type of that great redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would cover them with garments of his own righteousness and clothe them forever so that they might never be ashamed again. The psalmist says, then I will not be put to shame. Who can say these things? Only the person who has faith in Christ can be unashamed. As Dr. Fesco preached this morning, Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ bore that that shame for us. This leads us to the third proposition, which is God's commandments point to Christ. God's commandments point to Christ. As Paul says in Romans 7, 21 through 25, so that I, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All these commandments point to a fulfillment in Christ Jesus, as Paul said, who will save me from this body of death? Jesus Christ, our Lord. The one who is blameless, as we discussed in verse 1, who always walks in the law of the Lord. is not one of us, but this culminates with Jesus Christ. The one who seeks the Lord with all his heart is ultimately none of us, 
but the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who does no wrong is ultimately none of us, but the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is diligent to keep his precepts and steadfast to keep his statutes is ultimately none of us, but Jesus Christ. The one who endured the shame, Christ the righteous, so that we will never be put to shame if we have only faith in him. In response to these, we have a responsibility to have our eyes fixed on all your commandments. Verse 6b says, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. This this verse corresponds with verse 4. And the psalmist having acknowledged that he has sinned in the past and found a merciful God through the promise of the Messiah and never again will be ashamed, he now vows to fix his eyes on all your commandments. This leads us to our fourth and final proposition. God's commandments are to be a rule of life. God's commandments are to be a rule of life. That is, having come to Christ Jesus by Christ's initiative, the Christian now makes God's commandments a rule of life. He says, I will fix my eyes on all your commandments. He doesn't believe he is saved by keeping the commandments. He's only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the promised Messiah alone. And therefore, he cannot boast of having been saved, he can only give glory to God alone. But he has this responsibility now to fix his eyes on all God's commandments and bear fruit in the process. This leads to our applications. I have three for you this evening, and I will begin with a question. How then are we to obey the law? How then are we to obey the law? How are we to obey God's commandments? The first is not in the legal use of the law. The legal use of the law is a legal contract that obligates God to you. He made promises in the Garden of Eden to Adam in the covenant of works. But that was abolished by the first sin. It is with fallen man that Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one gives a gift to him for repayment. You are the creature. You have been created. And who dares speak back to the creator? If you want to operate in this covenant, you have to be perfectly righteous. You have to be diligent in the use of God's commands. Therefore, no one is perfect by this legal contract. However, unbelievers are still bound by this covenant of works, obliged to obey the the righteousness of the law perfectly. For as Paul says, "Cursed, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things 
written in the book of the law and do them. But Paul continues, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by law, for the righteous will live by faith. The, 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 the legal use of the law is illustrated by a Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, going up on the mountain of morality. When he attempted to climb, climb that hill, he found the mountain was crashing upon him, and he feared that he would be crushed by it. The hill of morality is according to your good works. Do this and live. But according to Psalm 119.4, you can never do it if you want to do it according to a legal contract. The Lord has commanded you to climb diligently and be steadfast in all his precepts and all his statutes. You cannot do it because it is too exhaustive and it points to your sin. This leads to our second application. So you can't do it by a legal contract or a covenant of works. But you, but the Christological use of the law communicates that you cannot do this by a legal contract. But when you embrace Christ by faith, resting and receiving him as he is offered in the gospel, you can lay down your arms and be at peace. For Christ has done everything necessary to save you. You have done nothing. Christ does everything. When the law crushes you, and it will always crush you when you attempt to do it in this legal way, you come to the bottom of yourself and cry out with Paul, who will save me from this body of death? And you respond similarly. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you will receive a full pardon so that you can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are freed from shame. As Romans 10.11 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, it is like Christian. When he meets evangelist after climbing on the hill of morality, an evangelist says, no, no, you need not do that. You need not climb the mountain of morality but you only have to go to the foot of the cross. And there you will be relieved of your burden. And this is what Christian does. He goes to the cross and he finds his burden cast into a tomb and buried never to return again. He rises with new life and he begins to sprint like never before because he has the burden lifted off his back. The burden of sin the burden of shame, and the burden of guilt. When you were brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, you too had a burden on your back, the burden of sin, the burden of shame and guilt. But now you have been freed from that burden, freed from the burden of the law, and you have been justified, adopted, and sanctified. However, this is not the final destination. Oftentimes, people stop at this road. They stop at the foot of the cross. But this is not the end. This is only the first step in the process of sanctification. 
This leads us to our final application, the evangelical use of the law. You have been saved in Christ Jesus from the legal use of the law. However, you are not freed from the law entirely. The Christian says, God, you have not given your law in vain. You gave your law according to the perfect representation of you who are in heaven. And for the Christian, the commandments are to be taken up as a rule of life. You have the spirit of God that came into you, into your life, so that he makes you willing and able to walk in his law. This is what Psalm 119, 4 through 6 is speaking of. Remember, Psalm 119 assumes that you are regenerate. And if you have and if you have the spirit really living inside of you, you will understand that you are bound to the evangelical use of the law. This makes you willing and ready to do the works of the law. This is not complete in this life, but it will be completed on the final day. If you have grace working in your life, you will follow the evangelical use of the law, the gospel use of the law. That is, the law has now become your rule of life. God commissions this rule because he loves you. And you will obey because you love God and his son. As his son, Jesus Christ says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If you have been saved from sin by Jesus, you will want him to be your master. And by the evangelical use of the law, you will prove that. Like the dog who loves his master, you will demonstrate your love to your master, the triune God, and the prayer of the psalmist will be fulfilled in your life. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we longed, we long to glorify you with everything that we think or speak or our actions. But we do wrong, inevitably. We cannot do it. So Christ comes in and bears our sins in our place and says, therefore, now you have no condemnation because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we marked in the sermon that we now have the duty to take up evangelical obedience, obedience as a rule of life. And we ask that you give us grace to do it because we can't do it without your grace. We cannot do it without your grace. And with your grace, we can do all things. 
through Christ who strengthens me. It is by the work of Jesus that we pray. Amen.